everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Raymond Strong III. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So I understand that you have a pretty incredible story to tell. Um, when did everything happen for you? So I was uh, wrongfully incarcerated between December 18th, 2001 to February 4th, 2002. And, and where did this occur? I was living in uh, Post and Kill, New York. So it was like Rensselaer County. And, and so tell us briefly kind of what happened leading up to the arrest? I think one factor that's important is I went to high school in Stockton, California, and I moved to New York a week before 9-11 happened. So obviously going to school in New York after 9-11, things are a little heightened. And the other thing that made it another factor I think that was important is I actually didn't start school right away. In California, they started school in August. New York starts school after Labor Day, and I couldn't enroll right away. So my dad was upset about that and homeschooled me for about a month or so. So I started a new school during the middle of the school year. So that made me stood out more. And then my appearance, I was probably the only Asian kid in my high school. Um, the way I dressed, shaved my head, I definitely stood out in my high school. And the other factor is... In California, the things that I was taught my freshman and sophomore year, they were teaching my junior and senior year in New York. So I already knew half the material. So some of my teachers allowed me to listen to music with my headphones and write in my notebooks. I wrote short stories, poems during class. So a lot of students were like, hey, why are you so special? Why, why are you allowed to do this? And all of a sudden I'm from California, again, the only Asian kid from the high school, so a lot of people came up to me. I shared my notebooks, uh, wrote a lot of dark stories, mental health issues, suicide, depression. Obviously, after 9-11, there was talks about going to war. So I had you know, stories about that. And that's kind of like the setup of to me moving there. And then uh, the incident that the police were trying to figure out happened in November. Um, speaking to three freshman girls in my music class, again, they're like, oh, you know, you, you get to do all these cool things, you get to listen to music in class, shared my stories, 
one of the girls seemed interested, so she asked me what was the next story I was working on. I explained to her that in the hallways, they have, uh, I forget what they're called, like drills for what happens if there's a bomb threat. And I told her, like, I thought it was idiotic that we have a blueprint for people who want to inflict massive damage on what to do. They can just say, oh, there's a bomb threat. We all go into this building. They blow up that building. They'll kill everybody. I was like, this is kind of dumb. So I told her I was going to work on a story about that. And right when the bell rang for the class to end, her friend was like, oh, are you going to do something like that? And I told her, no, I would never do anything like that. And in my opinion, you know, we're kind of like a little flirting. So I mentioned like, oh, you know, if anyone tried to do anything like that, I would, I would save you guys. So I don't know if there was a miscommunication, if they misheard me during the bell ringing, everyone leaving. But from my understanding, one of the girls told their dad about this. And I guess he thought I was a terrorist. You know, I'm, I, you know, I must be a terrorist. So a month later, the police were called. And I was in lunch, guidance counselors comes up to me. He's like, oh, you're not in trouble or anything, but the police want to talk to you. In my mind, I'm thinking the police wanted to talk to me about what happened on Friday during a track meet because I was on the track team. Some kids stole some things in the shed where the track team sold items. And long story short, I took a, a can of soda. Before I opened it, my friend was like, hey, you know, you're, you're stealing from the track team. And so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll put it back. Like, you know, I didn't know. I just thought it was there for everybody. So I was thinking like they were going to question me because I was a witness, maybe like, oh, did you see anyone else? So when the police were asking me questions, they were talking about like what I did Monday, which was odd because I didn't go to school Monday. Uh, I cut I cut school because I didn't go to the track meet on Saturday because I was injured. Coach was like, it's mandatory. And I was afraid to face my coach. So I was like, oh, I'm not going to go to school Monday. So when they're asking me what I did Monday, I was like, I was home. I don't, I don't understand what you're trying to imply. And again, I was talking about what happened in the track meet. And they're like, no, we're talking about something else. They were very vague in the beginning. I didn't understand, once again. Didn't understand I was 16. And then they finally just gave me a little information. Oh, you, you talked to some girls. And I'm trying to think. I'm like, oh, yeah, like a month ago. And then that's when I realized that's what they were hinting at. So I explained what happened in November. Um, my journal came up. So they asked to read my journal. I let them read my journal because, once again, I'm a writer. I'm like, oh, people want to read my stories. Yeah, I, I don't mind sharing. I sat out in the hallway. I must have fell asleep because they were in there for a while, but they brought me back in and the tone completely changed. Like it, it I don't know how to explain it, but they were they were like drilling me, like they were trying to get me, they were trying to catch me in a in, in a lie or or something else. It, it just it was a different experience the second time around. So what were they alleging that you uh that you were trying to do they charged me with uh making a false report like a bomb threat um originally they didn't tell me what i was being charged with 
I actually don't think I was charged officially until after I was released. Um, the information was a little hazy, but the only thing really the 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 state trooper was just pretty much telling me is like, oh, you know, you're a terrorist. All all your stories are real. These are plans that you're going to do. And um, supposedly he told people that he found a bomb in my locker. Like he told my parents, he told the school. Obviously, there was no bomb. Uh, but for whatever reason, that's what he, he was telling people. So at what point did they actually arrest you? Like how long passed between uh, when they first questioned you and when, uh, when they eventually arrested you? So I want to say I must have been in there for a few hours. And then after they were trying to uh, accused me of, you know, trying to make a bomb or blow up the school. They called my parents to tell them I was being arrested. So during this entire and time, how they were... parents react when 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 they're <laughs> told by the police that their son is is trying to blow up the school and he's being arrested. Yeah. I mean, were they incredulous or are, were they supportive of you? Um, oh yeah, they they were on my side. They they knew. There was a huge misunderstanding. I think uh, so. It was my dad and my stepmom. Um, I, if I remember correctly, my stepmom was kind of questioning, like, "Why are you just now telling us? Like, he's a minor. You should have informed us. You were questioning him before all of this happened." Like, she seemed more upset about that. That she, you know, they found out towards the end, not towards the beginning. But it yeah, seems they, they strange that I, I mean. At any point, did they tell you, um, do you want a lawyer? They never read me my rights. I Again, I didn't. This is my first time really speaking to the police. My initial thought was I was trying to help. I was like trying to figure out what happened with the incident of the track team. And then they were asking about the girls, talking to the girls, which I had no idea why they were asking me. And then it all turned into, now I understand the second part, they, they they pretty much thought I was a criminal. At first, they were just trying to figure out what was going on. But then when they read my journal and then my appearance, as they brought that up, I was like, oh, you know, you must be a devil worshiper. You must be, you know, the way you dress, you shave your head. There are clear indications that you're up to no good. It's pretty much what they were telling me. And this is like two, three months after 9-11? Yes. And also my, my school was being investigated for a sexual hazing incident, like a month, maybe three weeks before this. So my, my parents also think like, oh, the school wanted to take the pressure from that news. Like, oh, this has been going on. I was like, oh no, this, this kid's also doing things and we arrested him, the school is safe. Like shift the attention away from that. But I, my, it was my teacher, my, I think it was my English teacher. He got arrested. I was like, wow, this, I can't believe this is going on in this school. So they eventually arrest you. So what was that like for you? Um, I don't, so I, the parts that I do remember was going into the judge's office. Again, my first experience, uh, it was like a small office. I didn't go to a courthouse. So I thought that was odd. And his room, again, just giving you the details, it was a disaster. Like, books, notebooks, folders were everywhere. It was unorganized. So when I think of a judge, I'm thinking 
you know, professional, has everything, you know, his bookcase is all sorted out, all his files organized so he can do his job. So I was a little concerned. It's like, wow, this is <laughs> a mess. And pretty much what, right when I sat inside the office, the judge is running around from room to room getting changed because I guess an aunt or a cousin got into a severe accident. I don't know if it was life-threatening, but it sounded like it was urgent. So as the police officers talking about the, the facts of what happened, the judge wasn't sitting down listening. He was moving around, going from one room to the next, talking to his secretary, talking to someone on the phone, through the speakerphone. And the only thing I remember him saying was, you know what, if you, we'll have you do a psyche valve. If you pass it, then you can go home. That's the only really thing I remember him saying. And I took his word for it. I'm like, I, you know, I knew I didn't do anything wrong to begin with. And I'm like, okay, I get to talk to professionals. They'll they'll, they'll find the truth out. And then I get to go home. <laughs> so, so you have the psyche valve. And, and what was that like? It was two. It was two gentlemen interviewing me. Um, again, I I'm very open and honest. I was. They asked me questions. I answered it. It wasn't uh, too horrible, but at the same time, I'm thinking I get to go home because I'm telling them the truth. And they found they, they ruled. I'm not sure. Like they they documented that I wasn't a danger to myself. I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't dangerous to others. I wasn't homicidal. But they're like, we do have concerns about your mental health. We recommend you do therapy and whatnot after you get out. So I'm like, okay. And again, I'm thinking I get to leave soon. And that, uh, <laughs> that didn't happen. Wow. So, um, you know, um, so what was it? How long were you in jail? 48 days. And at what point did you actually, for the first time, talk to an attorney? I want to say I had a, I had a preliminary hearing Christmas Eve. I do believe I spoke to my attorney before that. And he told me he was a divorce attorney, never done a criminal case in his life. He pretty much said, you're going to lose if we go to trial. I have no experience. Just plea. That was his advice. And how'd you end up with a divorce attorney? Because uh, I, my parent, my, my dad was a pastor. He couldn't afford an attorney. My stepmom was a waitress. So I'm assuming that was a public defender. And in my opinion, it seemed like, in my opinion, I think everyone knew I was innocent and they were trying to cover up their mistake. So they tried to do everything possible to make sure I pled to something. So they're like, all right, divorce attorney, you're, you're his public defender. Go make sure he takes a plea so we can make this go away. That's my opinion. Um, and, and describe what it was like for you in the jail. Um, how were you treated uh, and what happened? Uh, uh, I, so one thing I do remember, like like it just happened, uh, I, I finally see the jail. Um, so I'm in the passion side. 
the jails to the right of me. I look over to my right and I see the building and a tear goes, rolls down my eye and the, the state trooper who arrested me, he's like, there's no need to cry. You know, this is your home now. Like, it's, you know, it's like, don't cry about it. But when they uh, searched, like when they did their intake, the guard whispered in my ears, you know, we're going to kill you in your sleep. We're going we're gonna to kill you because they thought I was a terrorist. And another guard comes in with like a canine dog and it's being like aggressive, like barking. And you know, I don't know how else to explain it, but it, just, it, it seemed like my words, like a vicious dog, like it's going to tear me to shreds. And they're joking. It's like, oh, let, let the leash go. Let the leash go. Let, let, the, let the dog have Adam. And then the other guy's like, yeah, you know, when you're sleeping, we're going to send this dog you know, after you. And, you know, it's going to, you know, F you up and, you know, you're going to die, you know, know, calling me a piece of shit and stuff like that. Uh, The guards did do illegal strip searches while I was incarcerated. There was a settlement that other inmates, I'm not sure who started the lawsuit. I just got a letter saying, you know, the jail did illegal strip searches during your incarceration. Here's a thousand dollars. So they were doing that at the time. I didn't know it was illegal. Um, but the, most of the guards, like I said, they, they threatened to kill me, made, made jokes about it. I've had one guard that was nice to me. Uh, when I first got into the, the processing, they never gave me a change of clothes, no toiletry, no anything. So when I had to go to court, um, for Christmas Eve, I haven't showered. I haven't used deodorant. I had no change of clothes. So the guard's like, oh, man, you know, you get this smelly bastard, you know, this dirty person. You know, there's anything you can think of just insulted me during the entire time to transport me. And only one guard came up to me. is like, hey, man, you know, I heard you're like Stephen King. Like, don't, you know, don't you know, keep your head up. And, you know, did you get anything when you when you got in? I was like, no, I didn't, I didn't get anything. It's like, all right, I'll make sure you get a change of clothes, you know, all the stuff you need. Just, you know, take a shower when you when you get back and, you know, just keep your head up. So he was pretty much the only <laughs> only one that was nice to me. Um, and are you like 16, 17 at this point? Yeah, 16, yes. And so you you see the judge and the judge doesn't even set bail, right? Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, the when I looked at the sheet, it's just like a line. He doesn't even write a number or anything. It's just a dash. So you say that uh, your divorce attorney, um, you know, was attempting to get you to take a plea, in part because <laughs> you know he didn't do criminal cases, which seems like a problem. Um, and but. You decided not to take a plea. No. Why not? I I knew I knew I was innocent. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, I, I'm an angel or I haven't, you know, I've, you know, as a teenager, I've done stupid things, but I will admit to it. You you ask me something, if I did it, I did it. Like I mentioned before, with the track team incident you know i took a can of soda i put i put it back the coach actually made an announcement before we left he's like hey you know something happened with with the sheds if you did anything i appreciate if you come up so i told the other guys who did it hey i'm gonna tell the coach i was one of the people that did that 
and I'm not going to name names. I'll go by myself, but if you come with me, that's fine. So that's what I did. I told the coach, like, hey, yeah, I, I took a soda can, and I brought, it, I brought it back, though, and I didn't realize I was stealing. And that's when the coach told me, he's like, oh, no, that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about someone took money and sweaters, more valuable items. But that's always always how I've been. If I did, if I did something, I'm going to tell you I did it because I don't know, this is a, a value of mine. So it goes the other way. If I didn't do something, I'm not going to sit there and say I did it. And, and you know, I was facing a felony. They were charging me with a felony. And I was, you know, I think it was 18 months. It's like, oh, you know, this is your best deal you're going to get. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'll take my chances. And eventually they actually offer you time served. So you could go home yeah. if you... Yes lead to this and and you still held firm that's correct they they uh they can't they i think they did like three or four pleas each time the deal got better for for me you know i went from like an e uh, e felony to like an a misdemeanor then you know it's like instead of a year it was like six months and time served and when i spoke to other professors about my case some of them were prosecutors or retired prosecutors. And they're like, just that information right there. They told me, I can already, already tell you the prosecutor knew you were innocent. No, the later the case goes on, the worse the deal is, is for the defendant. The more time a prosecutor puts onto a case, you know, they're like, I put all this time, now the deal is going to be worse. The best deal is always the first deal. So they always told me, like, I can tell from your story that they knew you were innocent and they're just trying to cover it up because they've never done that before and even though they're like yeah you can go home today you just plea you just get a misdemeanor you know i forgot what they were you know at the time i didn't care but like oh you know you can still vote you know like certain things they said oh because it's not a felony you know here's all the the, the pluses you get and i'm thinking but i still didn't do this I, i'm going to go to trial I'm gonna... and my attorney always told me that like, you're going to lose and i'm like i'll take my chances <laughs> So tell us about the trial. <laughs> so the trial, the, the main thing that I remember was testifying. Um, it, was a, it was a bench trial. I, the one thing that my attorney did do well was telling me to do a bench trial because after 9-11, he's like, any, any group of people we get, they're going to think you're guilty because of 9-11. Like, they're just going to see you, think of 9-11, you're guilty. So that was the one thing he did that helped me out. But I remember the prosecutor. I, so to be honest, I didn't know I wanted to be an attorney during, like, during all this. It's something that happened way you know years later. But this was like the first sign, like this is something I could have done. Looking back, but I I could see what the prosecutor was trying to do with her questions towards me, trying to paint me out as a, a suspicious character like oh the police officers they had the right to arrest you because you looked suspicious so when she asked me about oh you know you dress in all black so you, you know you must be a devil worshiper my attorney would object but i still answered because i wanted to answer so i told her no you know I, I, I dress in all black because that's that's what i prefer and so she would dig into it so i kind of like set up set her up for a trap and i would be like yeah, i i can see why someone with prejudice 
might think I'm a devil worshiper, but I dress in all black because I used to get bullied when I was little. And I can grab any shirt and any pants and I'm going to match and no one's going to make fun of me for mismatching. Same thing with my head. Oh, you must be, I don't remember they call me a skinhead, but they're like, oh, you know, you shave your head. So it must, you know, you might be in a gang or something. And I was like, no, again, I got bullied because of my hair. I shave it because now I don't have to comb it. It's just, it's just easier for me. And every time the prosecutor went down that route, my attorney always objected. So when you look at the transcript, unfortunately, none of it's publicly record or however it's phrased. But that's what I remember most was seeing the prosecutor trying to make me out, in my opinion, to be a criminal. Oh, you look like a criminal, so you must be a criminal. And me just turning it around and saying, no, I'm a human. I have actual reasons. And these are the things I told the police officer. So obviously his bias and prejudice is why he thought one way when the facts and my explanation, which was the truth, he ignored. And that was from the police officer, not me. So ultimately the judge ends up finding you not guilty. That's correct. Um, did they give a reason for that or did they just rule? From my understanding, um, they figured out that the police officer lied. They realized that... And what did the police officer lie about? So from the internal investigation, the IA papers that I received, he was telling everyone that all this stuff happened in December because for it to be an immediate threat or however it was phrased, it had to have been done recently, not a month later. They, you can't sit there and be like, oh, we were afraid, we felt alarmed, but this happened a month ago. So he lied about the time frame, and it was, like I said, there was enough evidence to say, like, yeah, you did lie because the, the witnesses said it happened in November. You know, I said it happened in November. Like, everything pointed that this happened a while ago. And that there was no evidence that I had a bomb or that I said I wanted to plant a bomb. Like, there was no evidence. And the witnesses also said that, like, the witnesses never said they were afraid. They never, you know, like, nothing cooperated with the police officer. Did you ever get a sense for why the police officers went down the road? Or, or was this really just a situation where... We're right after 9-11, nobody wants to take a chance. Um, this guy's a little scary. Uh, we'll just lock him up. I think that's, I think it was because of my skin color after 9-11. And to be honest, I, I also think the police officer didn't like my answers because I always had an explanation, once again, which was true. It wasn't like I was making it up, but I, I pretty much was calling him racist to his face without saying that you're a racist, and I don't think he liked that. So in, in retaliation, he just threw me in jail. In a way, everything went wrong, but unlike a lot of people... I think I know what you're trying to say, but um, to be honest, I, I, barely, I barely made it. Um, I got PTSD, anxiety, and depression from all this. I've been homeless four or five times. I've been wrongfully arrested twice after this incident happened. Been harassed by the police. I even um, 
when I when I got was found not guilty, I went back to California to see my friends. And on the way there, I got I got stopped by police in Nevada. And they just targeted me. They only searched me and no one else. So uh I don't I I I wish I could explain what really made the difference, but um to be honest, it, it it was I was I was married, got divorced, but I was in a bad marriage. Leaving that, being with someone who was supportive and understood my disability and believing that I could make a difference. because uh, it was always like, oh, maybe in another lifetime I, I could have done something with my life so just having that belief like okay maybe I can be an attorney and then dealing with all this injustice for the past five or six years I had to represent myself I had you know I won I've won three cases on my own and that's kind of what showed me okay I can do this it's not a matter of if it's a matter of okay when when will I when will I get my law degree so I uh, some luck involved <laughs> but uh even though this was a horrible experience i never thought about civil rights before i never cared about any of this um, i'm a huge first amendment person now huge you know constitution so i'm you know, in law school uh, i want to help people that's why i like sharing my story i want to spread awareness and you know I, i've written a memoir about this I have the first draft done. I just got to get it edited and published, but this is something I don't mind talking about. Uh, but in, in a way, how I look at it is these, these people wanted to do injustice towards me. And now all they did was make someone who uh, was passionate about social justice and who wants to fight against it. So in the end, they kind of lost because now I'm on, <laughs> I'm on the right side. And I'm going to do everything I can to ensure this doesn't happen to anyone else. So at what point did you decide uh, you wanted to go to law school? <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of a funny story. My, uh, I had, so my girlfriend in New York, when we were together, she wanted to go back to school. So she had to take uh, like an entrance, an entrance exam to see like how far removed because she's been out of high school for a while. So she didn't do very well. She had to take like prereq courses. So she was upset about that. And me being five years older than her, I was like, look, I'll take the test and I'm going to do worse. Like, you know, so I only really took the test to try to make her feel better. So when I went to the community college, I almost got a perfect score on the reading comp and I scored really high on math. So the test proctor was like, are you enrolling here? And I was like, I, I had no intentions. I was like, no. And he's like, you scored really high. You should, you should consider it. So my plan was I was going to go into human, human services, get my major in that. If I can't handle college, I'll go ahead and be like a high school sports coach. Because I played baseball, ran track, played football in high school. But the ultimate goal was being an attorney. But I didn't know if I could handle going to school with my disability. I felt like I was too old, not smart enough. So when I got a 4.0 in my first semester and having a professor tell me I wasn't going to be able to graduate because of my disability, it kind of made me want to prove her wrong. 
And I said, you know what? And none of these backup plans. I'm just focusing on going to law school. I changed majors to individual studies, focus on political science. I ran for president of student senate for the community college there and got elected. And the professor that I had issues with, I talked to the dean and I did stuff as president to ensure like she didn't treat students like that anymore. But it's kind of weird, but it seems like uh, chaos and adversity is what made me thrive. <laughs> so instead of putting me down, it just made me want to do more. And that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> and, and so where are you now? I'm in San Francisco for, and I'm enrolled at a UC Law SF. Ah, and, uh, and when did you start? Uh, we just did a first week of orientation this week. So first day of the class is Monday. <laughs> wow, what a story. <laughs> so we'll have to come back in five years and see where you are after you yeah, published your book and after you passed the bar. <laughs> That'd be, I, I would be glad to come back. This is, uh, I, I listened to a few of your episodes and I, I'm really glad you guys do what you do. I, I think it's important. There are so much injustice going on. Um, when I lived in New York, it's like a small town, even though they call it a city, but they, they talked about how, oh, there's no issues with the police. There's no injustices. And I had to speak in a public hearing and be like, hey, sorry to tell you this, but there are things going on here that you're not aware of. I've, you know, racial profiling, you know, police harassment, whatever you want to call it, it, it is going on here too. It's not just major cities everywhere, there's injustices. And I think people need to realize that it, it can happen to them. It can happen to their loved ones, no matter where you are in the country, it can happen to them. All right, well, thanks Raymond for coming on and uh, telling your amazing story. Well, thank you for having me again. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Raymond Strong III, um, who was uh, for 48 days as a 16-year-old was wrongly incarcerated, um, but he was acquitted. And now he's going back and going to law school at uh, UC San Francisco. Um, so we wish him well. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.